face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss current issues and how we can use policy to solve local, national, and international challenges. We are recording this on January 14th, 2021, and my name is Evan Papp, and I graduated from the School of Public Policy in 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And my co-host is Shanice Pomero. Could you introduce yourself, Shanice? Absolutely. So my name is Shanice, and I'm the vice president of the School of Public Policy Alumni Board. Um, I also graduated in 2015 with a specialization in social policy. And today we're highlighting the work of the School of Public Policy's Do Good Institute with Callie Moore, Megan Masterson, and Nathan Dietz. Uh, Megan, could you start uh, with um, introducing yourself and uh, what you studied and why you're interested in public policy? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am a program and communications coordinator for the Do Good Institute. So I run um, our impact interns program and our ambassador program, uh, and then all things communications. Um, I studied international relations in my undergrad at the University of Delaware. And then I'm actually a current public policy student now finishing my degree part-time as I work full-time for DGI. So I'm like in the thick of uh, public policy now, at least in terms of studying. Um, and I'll be focusing on the nonprofit management track. Um, and I'll, I'll pass it along to Callie, I guess, next. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, everybody. My name is Callie Moore. Um, I am a program coordinator for the Do Good Institute. So my focus areas are running the Do Good Challenge do good mini grants, and then I do a lot of student coaching um, for any students that are working on social impact teams, projects, or ventures. Um, I studied politics and government and sociology for undergrad at Ohio Wesleyan University before I moved here to DC. Um, and I'm also like Megan, as I work full-time, I'm currently a part-time student in a master's program as well, but I am studying industrial organizational psychology in the um, BSOS program. So not in public policy, but hoping that all of my organizational psychology helps as I guide students who are working on creating organizations with strong social impact. Nathan, kick it to you. Sure, uh, I'm Nathan Dietz. I'm a senior researcher at the Duguid Institute, and uh, the the work that we the work that we do uh, at the Duguid Institute, the research work has to do with uh, uh, volunteering and civic engagement, philanthropy, uh, giving to charities, um, and the the nonprofit sector as a whole. Um, and the connection to what the rest of the Do Good Institute does is that that's what we want our, our alums to do. You know, we want them to acquire the skills and the, the capacity that they need to, uh, to become active citizens in the community, support the nonprofit sector, and support everybody else in their communities as well. Um, I studied political science and uh, uh, applied statistics basically when I was in college. Um, I came to DC about 20, over 20 years ago, started teaching at the, the School of Public Affairs in American University, ran through a couple different jobs and uh, joined DGI 
uh, in early 2017, so almost four years ago. Great. And could you talk a little bit, Nathan, about how the Institute came into being? Oh, I, I can. I'm not sure I'm the, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the <laughs> one who's most up on history, so uh, I, I might kick it to Callie and Megan sure. here. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was a, um, the, the Institute started uh, in its current form back in 2010 uh, when a, a, a friend and colleague of mine, actually, who I was working with uh, when we were both feds, Bob Grimm, um, uh, left the Corporation for National and Community Service and took the job as director of uh, what was then the Center on Nonprofit Leadership and Management or something like that. And uh, he came to, uh, he came to sort of uh, develop and, and uh, launch some courses for undergraduates and graduates in nonprofit leadership and philanthropy. And he started what he called the, the Do Good Challenge almost right off the bat. It was a competition among student social entrepreneurs uh, for a little pot of venture capital that the, and the, the winner got a chance to uh, take that money and scale up their, initi scale up their initiatives. Um, so over time, I think uh, that the first actual public challenge was held in 2012. Uh, and uh, the, I think it was the, I forget who's the first winner? The Food Recovery Network, um, which is now a national nonprofit. Um, they were our first winners and kind of launched this idea that we can actually coach teams and we can support teams from an idea to impact, um, which really, domino created the domino effect to what we now know is the, the do good institute but it really started nathan like you said with bob and um there was a donor who gave ten thousand dollars and he said okay i want students to figure out where this money goes um and so there were um a group of students and it was a it was a program and and they took both courses undergraduates and graduates in philanthropy and nonprofit leadership and um from there, the baby steps turned into now a staff of 11 and growing, um, which is great. <laughs> and Nathan, I don't know if you have anything else to add or Callie, um, but it's definitely skyrocketed um, in terms of growth. <laughs> so yeah. where, where does funding come from for the Do Good Institute to, to help with these seed grants? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, the Institute was started by one large gift from, uh, from a donor who decided that they wanted to really support this mission and then it's grown. So we actually have a bunch of different funding streams from both individual donors, university funding. Um, and then most recently we have our graduate certificate program, which is actually the first program that we have that actually generates money for us as an Institute. Um, and it's our graduate certificate program. It's four courses, um, where nonprofit leaders can, can get a graduate certificate. And so we actually recently lowered the tuition prices, which made it so much more accessible for people. So that has been a major, um, major benefit for us in terms of funding too, which this is new for us. It's like, oh, we're actually generating our own funding from our teaching and our programs, um, as well as having, like I said, individual donors. Um, and then we also have money um, in um, like from a larger, um, from a larger donation, which exactly. the name is escaping me right now. Endowment, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, the endowment money, yeah. Thank you, Kathy. No problem. Yeah, and Shanice, over to you. Yeah, so um, I am curious to know what have been the past successes of the Duke Institute? 
Yeah, um, I'll start us off. So I think kind of as Nathan and both Megan mentioned, um, one success really is the do good challenge. And as the manager of that program, it's definitely my, uh, the thing that I love to talk about. So the first challenge started in 2012 and the success of taking a student team who won the challenge, um, who had this brilliant idea of, you know, we throw out so much food in cafeterias. What if instead of throwing it out, we were able to save it and donate it locally to people who, um, are experiencing any hunger issues. And it's now scaled into a nonprofit that has more than 200 locations and campuses all across the nation. So just showing that success story of both, you know, students have the power to do these things now and to scale these programs up. And the student who started that program now successfully has his own business that's more of a venture um, called Hungry Harvest where they're doing the same thing, recovering food that might be thrown out from grocery stores and giving it direct to consumers who want to help you know, combat food waste. So we've seen a number of programs where they started off as small teams, maybe it was in a class, maybe it was some friends or people who got together who saw an issue and were like, you know what, we can do something about this um, and have been able to see great success. So in the last 10 years since the challenge, there have been a number of teams. Um, and I would say the other successes, you know, not every team is going to maybe have wild success or launch into a nonprofit that has 200 locations, but even the opportunity to have the chance to, you know, see a problem, be empowered to do something about it, hopefully get some coaching and resources. We're hoping that we're creating kind of the foundational mindsets and skills so that later on in life, after you graduate, when you're an alum, um, you can really think back to what experiences people had with the Do Good Challenge to be able to draw on that. So we've definitely seen success for teams. Um, but we would say anybody who's even trying to do this is really a success for us. Yeah, I would, I would also add um, onto Cali, kind of, it's so inspiring, obviously, to see students who are passionate about something and want to make a change. But it's also been really great to see the office grow. It's felt like I said, this was started with one person. Um, and in 10 years, is now 11 people, which is still small, but mighty. Um, and we've really been seen or have been come to be known as a leader in the nonprofit space. So we work with so many different nonprofit partners. And as, as much as it's successful to partner with students, we're also seeing a bunch of success partnering with local nonprofits and being able to provide a pipeline of students to nonprofits um, in great capacity, but also um, being recognized by other universities too, who are like, wow, this is a really great model. I see what you're doing with students. How can we create something else like this at my university? Or how can we do this at a community college? Or, you know, how I'm a nonprofit and I love what you're doing. How can we work together? Those partnerships I also really see as a success um, because we're not just working in a silo on campus, but we're also able to work and inspire other universities, but also local nonprofits and local NGOs or any social impact businesses or ventures that see young people as the energetic, you know, wonderful um, spark plugs that they are. Um, so I think that's another huge success. And Nathan, I didn't even talk about research. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to talk about you. I think that uh, the, the best, to me, the most, uh, the most fulfilling things that, uh, that I see going on with the Dugan Institute have to do with the work that you two and others do with, uh, with student groups and uh, just making a, making a difference on campus. Yeah, I, I work on research projects and uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to see how that makes a difference, especially when you, uh, you write a report and you send it off to a journal and you wait and you wait and then you get a, a rejection notice or something. That's a little, that's not as 
fulfilling <laughs> as doing this. You sort also of get acceptance notices, Nathan. You get this <laughs> well, research published in a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing the thing is, uh, what I what we've been able to do here is so much fun, and it's so rewarding uh, just to, uh, to 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 produce some research that uh, that makes a difference to us. That's meaningful to us, but gets a lot of attention in the public in the popular press. I think uh, one of the best days of my professional life at the Duggan Institute was seeing uh, a mention of an article, a report that we published in the university-wide research roundup, right? We're a tier one research institution. You know, we're the flagship university of the whole, uh, within the whole state, you know, and uh, for us to be featured along with all these other fantastic, uh, meaningful, impactful research projects, I couldn't believe it. And I thought that was one of the, that was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. What was the uh, focus on for that report, um, for that research? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It was a. I don't think it was the first report that we did, which was all about a, uh, all about this this problem that kind of defines the 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 motivation for what the Dugan Institute is trying to do. Um, people people who enter college, and this has been true for years now, uh, but. Uh, they, they, when they enter college, they come in with one of their primary objectives as being able to help people who need help basically within communities and to be community leaders. So that was, uh, that wasn't this huge motivation back in the early eighties, but today, you know, almost, uh, almost 70% of entering first year college students feel like that's a primary motivation. And yet, uh, if you look at volunteering trends over time for people who are in high school and college, uh, they don't change. They haven't changed very much in recent years. So there's this real, we, we called our report good intentions, gap in actions, where, uh, and uh, it's, it's about the difference between the, the number of people who want to do good, who are college age, and the ones who actually do volunteer. Um, but I, I'm not sure I put the, uh, put the blame at the feet of the of young people themselves. I think that colleges and universities probably share a lot of responsibility in making a difference. Um, but I think the report that got the attention of Research Roundup was the one that we did about uh, under 25 uh, young adults. And, uh, and I think that was, that was really fascinating because what we saw was that uh, um, young adults are, are hitting, less likely to hit the traditional uh, markers for adulthood that, that people have always used traditionally in America, like getting married, having kids, getting a full-time job, et cetera. Um, they're less likely to do that when they're 25 or so. Um, and uh, they're also, which makes them less likely to volunteer, which is because these are the traditional drivers of volunteering. But the volunteering rate for people, for young adults who do reach those uh, achievements, who get married, have kids, uh, graduate college, get a full-time job, the volunteering rate for those groups has also declined. So, you know, it's a big problem. And uh, it's, it's something that we're concerned with, especially when we think about our alums. You know, what can we do to, what can we do to help uh, uh, make sure that people don't end up in that situation? Because it's really, because we know that they don't want to be in that situation. And Nathan, uh, I'm so glad you brought up alumni. Um, our alumni well, speak so highly of the project, um, of the Do Good Project or Do Good Institute. Um, and so, like the question of the hour is how can alumni connect with the Do Good Institute? My first step would be email me, Megan, <laughs> um, Megan at jm at umd.edu. But, um, but then on a serious note, 
Um, we're really trying to figure that out too, is like, you know, there's this amazing pool of alumni that are engaged in things that our students want to do. So how can we work together on that? And so there's a number of different ways we can do coaching. So a lot of our students who have these teams, um, you know, they are developing an app that brings health or whatever, um, health information to students, or maybe they're fundraising and they want to talk to a fundraising expert. Um, really alumni coaching is a place that we're exploring um, as it has huge potential. So that's one idea is, is you know, if alumni want to connect to students and can help and, and, and relate to them. Another way is um, through our program impact interns. And so we're working with partner and alumni organizations to partner interns that are either undergrads or graduate students with organizations in the social impact sector. And a lot of these organizations that we're partnering with are alumni organizations. And so it's students or, you know, students are partnered with someone that graduated 10 years ago, but are doing, you know, a lot of great work. So that's another way that we work with alumni. Um, and then in a more communications realm, um, it's, we have a LinkedIn page and we have social media. So I always encourage that if you can join these LinkedIn groups or if you can connect with us on social, get our newsletter, that way you can hear about the different programs that we have available um, and stay connected to us in that way. Perfect. And so I'll echo that and say, alumni, um, if you are watching this, please email Megan to see how you can plug in. Um, if you're interested in just being one of those organizations or just being that person to reach back. Um, so that's perfect. Thank you, Megan. Uh, so I'll throw it back to you, Evan. Cool. So 2021, what do you have on the agenda? What do you have on the horizon? What are, where are you uh, trying to move the, the ball? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'll start us off. Um, so again, do good challenge. Um, we had to cancel the challenge that was scheduled for 2020 because it's normally in April. And as we all remember, I'm sure about last March and April, things were, you know, just hitting with the pandemic. We were very unsure of what was happening. Normally that event is a big in-person event. Um, and so we made the hard decision to, um, to cancel, but that means there's double the energy going into this year. So we are currently underway with a totally virtual do good challenge this year first ever virtual challenge so really excited about that we're currently reviewing applications of all of the student teams that have entered and this year because we had to cancel last year we did open it up to young alums as well and so that was something that we haven't done before but really wanted to make sure that everybody who's worked really hard on their social impact projects and ventures in the last two years had a chance to enter the competition so that Do Good Challenge event is um, going to be released as a series of short videos over the month of April. So we'll make sure that all alums are able to watch. We're hoping that it'll be fun and engaging. And as an alum, you'll have a chance to be able to vote for your favorite team. So we're going to pick six finalist teams. They're going to do some pitch videos to share all of the work that they were able to accomplish. And I will say, even during the pandemic, these teams have been able to do such amazing work. And so you'll be able to vote for your top team. Um, teams are gonna get a chance to win a bunch of different prizes. So we have up to, I think $20,000 to give away in prizes to these teams, which helps kind of go back right to their work to either you know, continue what they're doing in volunteering, in advocacy, in service, in developing social enterprises. So that's really exciting. Um, other things we have on the dock for this semester is a few of our normal programs that we do, but again, kind of adapted for a virtual environment. 
So we're still running our mini grant program, um, which is where teams can apply for up to $500. And that's really for these early phase teams where they have a really great idea, they've really planned it out, but in order to accomplish it, you know, you need a little bit of funds to get things done. And so that's what our mini, mini grant program does. And then we're also doing our accelerator fellows program, which is geared towards those teams that have been able to prove impact already, um, that are really working hard, but we know students spend so much time on these projects, but they have life, right? They have school, they might need to get jobs, they may need to have ends meet. And we know that there's a huge equity issue with students who you know, have to find work in order to help sustain themselves and then students who don't. And so with our accelerator program, it allows for that ability of students to actually be paid almost like an internship, but to work on their own project. So it's kind of a, a great thing in two ways in terms of, again, getting some extra funds so that a student doesn't have to choose between working on their project and getting another job. And then they get extra support to make sure that projects, you know, we have coaches available, we have workshops to send people. Um, so those are some of the projects that we're doing outside of class. Um, and then in class, we're always supporting different professors who have a do-good element to um, their studies. So there might be, you know, a kind of project-based assignment that students are working on, or we'll pop in and do a guest lecture about social impact or how to do stakeholder interviews or how to do storytelling and pitching. So those are definitely kind of on my schedule for this semester. And then I think for the second half of 2021, we'll kind of see where it lands of hopefully, fingers crossed, everyone will be back and will be um, able to do some of our more in-person connections, which has been really great. But I would say, you know, I'm just so impressed with students who've been able to really make the best of the challenges in terms of adapting to virtual environment. But yeah, Meg or Nathan, is there anything else kind of on our semester that I didn't mention? I mean, I, I think you 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 mostly covered it. I think it'll be a very interesting time to be with students in social working with students in social impact with, you know, everything going on in the world, whether it's a pandemic or a presidential transition or um, you know racial injustice, whatever it is, our students. Um, more than ever, and I, you know, we probably, everybody says it all the time, right? It's so unprecedented. But also, our students are meeting this, meeting us at these occasions in unprecedented ways. Um, so I'm more excited, you know, through those avenues that Callie talked about, like the creative and innovative ways that we'll be able to partner with both students and nonprofit partners. Yeah, I'll be watching all that happen <laughs> and appreciating it actively. And doing but, research. <laughs> well, that, well, and I'm, uh, you know, just you mentioned, Megan, uh, our certificate program, Nonprofit Management and Leadership. I'll be teaching my class, which is Nonprofit Financial Management. The program's gotten so big that I taught it in the fall, like I usually do, and I'm teaching it again in the spring. So uh, that, that'll take up my time. And the students there, you know, they're, they're nonprofit professionals. A lot of them are pretty far along in their careers. They want to learn about the nonprofit sector. Um, and they come in not really expecting to know much about, don't thinking, not thinking that they know much about math and, uh, um, and Excel, working with spreadsheets and numbers and accounting. Um, but they all make it. They all get through. And, uh, but I think many of them enjoy it at the end. So looking forward Nathan. to it. Could you talk a little bit about the book project? I think that's exciting yeah. too, something that we have on the horizon. Um, yeah. 
I do good book. <laughs> yeah, I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And uh, sorry to jump in, but uh, you know, this is what I've just been immersed in this all day today, for one. Um, but we're uh, we've been asked to write a chapter in an edited volume about uh, um, uh, teaching non uh, training nonprofit leaders, training and teaching nonprofit leaders. Um, and uh, we were asked to do it because that's what we've been doing. And uh, I think our what we're going to talk about in our chapter is what it's like to run uh, a program like this that has university-wide scope rather than just being located within the school of public policy. You know, in other words, telling everybody how we developed our do good campus idea. And uh, that is what we've been doing is interviewing people who have uh, around the country and different universities who have done that the same type of thing. And there aren't very many of them. I think we all know each other, but it's been great just to sit down with them and talk about, you know, the, the struggles and the challenges that they went through to get to where they are today. So um, that's been great. I think uh, we're a small club and uh, I think it's strengthening our commitment to work with them to figure out how to tell the rest of the world how to do this. Something I think a lot think a lot about is obviously public policy students aren't necessarily primarily motivated by money. There's yeah. we we want to impact and and actually have make a difference that is positive not only in our community but whether it's in our state or in in the country or internationally. And obviously the Do Good Institute being in the School of Public Policy is a part of that. And I I see a complete shift generationally and in our culture as well that obviously you know you have to have the the bread and butter of survival you know I, everyone needs that but i do see such a service centered oriented culture coming up and i i see with the pandemic now more than ever that people are reprioritizing what is meaningful and i I guess, you know, taking a step back, the government's going to be playing a huge role in 2021, um, maybe more than we've ever seen in our lifetime. And what, what, how could the government also kind of pair with this social impact model and nonprofit model to, to really help leverage up um, the impact and, and really improve communities and improve um, potentials for, for different individuals as well? Yeah, uh, well, I can. Uh, this this is how I spend a lot of my time working on projects like this. So uh, I can start off, and uh, uh, Callie and Meg, you can jump in. But um, I think that uh, first of all, you know, what's uh, we when we think about what's happening at the what's happening in government, quote unquote, we tend to think about what's happening at the national at the national level, and uh, we've been working. Uh, me and uh, Bob, Bob Grimm, the director. Uh, primarily have been working with a group of people who have put a position paper together to try to uh, advise the uh, Biden-Harris administration about how the federal government can better support the nonprofit sector. So, and uh, the great thing about that is that that memo has already been circulating among the transition team, and uh, they're talking to us about, we're talking to uh, the organizers of that of the memo writing group about what the federal government can do, especially through executive order. Um, but what, uh, especially as I think about my class for the fall or for, for the spring, uh, I think about what happens below the national level, you know, in the in states and uh, localities and communities. Uh, the relationship between local government and the nonprofit and nonprofit organizations is really tight. 
and uh, a lot of in a lot of cases it's really long lived, and uh, and right now both the nonprofit organizations and the governmental units are, are really hurting because of the economic strain brought about by the pandemic. So, you know what what can be done at the what can be done to help the nonprofit sector. Uh, really has uh, a lot to do with uh, how much help state and local governments can get from the national government to try to figure out how to uh, how to break this this destructive cycle that they're in you know we we hope that many nonprofit organizations can make it because they provide such needed services but uh, you know that's that's yet to be determined we're all worried about uh, people right now rather than uh, organizational relationships so you know we're the, the jury's out about what's going to happen there um, I, I could go on, <laughs> but, uh, Callie and Megan, what do you, anything come to mind? Callie, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I think do you have just, this is of course a very interesting and for many people like very devastating kind of time and moment and what's happening, um, between government, federal, national, um, and as Nathan mentioned, you know, state and local, and I'm, I hope, and something I think we, you know, talk about and consider a lot is, you know, that everyone has a stake in politics and it might be difficult to kind of understand. And so, um, you know, really trying to help create space for those critical conversations and that, you know, it's hard, we can't necessarily do our jobs of, you know, empowering the next generational of leaders if they also don't understand their personal role and what they can do in terms of advocacy um, understanding policy. And again, it doesn't always have to be um, in DC, I think, or around DC, especially we can think like, oh, we can actually take a bus down uh, to Capitol Hill and go lobby and advocate for problems or for policies that we think are important. But that local government is so important um, and national or sorry, state government as well. And so I think for us and just considering, you know, our students care so much um, and understand that policies do matter. It does affect what they can do. And so figuring out, you know, how do we create spaces to have those conversations? Um, they're not always going to be easy. And so how do we practice critical dialogue? How do we challenge people to learn um, differently, but also, you know, have some kind of standards of, of what we expect in terms of you know, um, supported, equitable conversations? Um, it's challenging. I think as Do Good, we have those conversations a lot for ourselves and how we best support our students. Um, and I think kind of the, the thing is we're always going to be constantly learning and striving to do better. So there will never be a moment where we're like, we've got it. It's always going to be what's next. What can we keep learning? How can we keep pushing? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And the, the last thing I'll comment for that, I think, is um, personally, my first kind of professional job was as an AmeriCorps VISTA member. And so just kind of I bring that with me um, in service and understanding that's a national program. Um, but I was able to work for a local nonprofit and understanding that, you know, federal government can invest in states, it can invest in nonprofits to actually let them lead the way. And so less about, you know, we're dictating what we think you need and more about here's how we give you the resources so you can do this for yourself and how you want. Um, so AmeriCorps is a really interesting program. I think there's a number of do good members who come from that background. Um, but that's something that's kind of an interesting play in, in those policies. And so I think that especially kind of shows that relationship between federal, state, local, and how everybody's, you know, working together to get things done. 
Yeah, and I, I, oh, yeah, you know, I can't I can't add too much to that. That's I was just gonna say that between Nathan and Callie, if I could just, you know, retweet all of that, <laughs> that'd be it. Yeah, I'm I'm a Peace Corps volunteer as well. Great. And I'm very interested in some of the programs, jobs programs during the New Deal, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration. And mm -hmm. We see so many people um, thrown out of the workforce. And when the private sector is not able to provide jobs, I, the government has to step in and, and not just allow people to be thrown on, you know, the trash heap of history or something like that. So I think, you know, it's, it's great to hear that there's people working with the transition team with the, the Biden-Harris uh, administration. And I, I would like to see 20, 30 million people getting opportunities, especially who may not be able to get jobs in the workforce right now, who can go into a AmeriCorps type situation or a Peace Corps situation, which can build the skills, the experience and the confidence in, in becoming, you know, the next generation of leaders as well. So um, Shanice, I don't know if you wanted to add anything on that as well. Yes, I actually did, because I think you bring up a really great point about nonprofits meeting the moment um, that we're in, um, where so many people are struggling, and uh, just wanted to bring up um, the Poor People's Campaign, um, and one of their platforms um, is to actually create um, something akin to AmeriCorps VISTA, um, but with um, the ability to unionize and the ability um, to have um, health insurance um, tied with it, as well as living wages. Um, and so innovation like that, things that, um, you know, is something that could possibly come um, out through like a, a Do Good Institute. Um, can can really address the times that we have um, when a lot of people um, feel that the government has abandoned us. I, you know, that's that's great to hear. I had no idea that the Poor People's Campaign was actually advocating that, but I think that's that's one of the more that that probably would be one of the most effective interventions that we could make to solve a lot of these problems. You know, you help an organization which is there in the community, ready to help, except that they just don't have the resources, and uh, the the Vista type volunteer can help them. Uh, uh, drive up their capacity so that they can meet the needs of their communities. Uh, the people, people who are doing that work get jobs, you know, and they get the experience of, you know, actively helping people who others who, who need help. Um, the only thing that's missing is uh, would be people who could actually play the role of the volunteers, you know, people with the civic skills and the motivation to actually do that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky that we're, uh, we're managing almost a factory, you know, of, of alums who, uh, who have those qualifications who can come out and, uh, and, uh, and immediately make a difference. But there are others in the community too, you know, who don't graduate from our school of public policy who can jump in and help. And this would be tremendously helpful for them. And Shani, something else that you just brought up in terms of, you know, making sure those opportunities themselves are equitable, because um, that's a conversation we have a lot in terms of, you know, if it's a position that isn't meeting a livable standard, then who gets to do that position? And so I think that's a huge part of this conversation as well. Um, and so kind of to bring it back to do good, how we're trying to think about that too is, you know, the program that Megan runs in terms of impact interns, we make sure those are paid internships. And so again, we understand that if there's an opportunity, but it's only gonna be available to those who already have some sort of financial security, is it really an opportunity? And so um, that's always a challenging conversation with, you know, nonprofits where resources all are really tight, but we wanna make sure we're 
as best as possible. And again, this is always gonna be a conversation, but how do we make sure that we're promoting opportunities that are equitable for everyone and so that we're not kind of perpetuating any system as best as we can of um, making sure that you know only certain students or certain people can, can take up those opportunities. And so we're doing our part, what we can at Do Good with programs like Impact Interns with our Accelerator Fellows, um, constantly trying to think about you know how is this being equitable, accessible, and then having um, people like Nathan be a part of those national conversations for programs like AmeriCorps um, to bring that perspective as well. So yeah, lots, lots of ways that we're trying. And I think um, it's great to see all the energy around it and really thinking of you know how people want to help their communities and how do we make sure that they have the ability to do so. And to do so helpfully, right? Like to, to make an impact without, I think that's another part in this is, is straying a bit from, you know, government assistance, but how are we building students that aren't just going into a community and saying, okay, I'm here to help, but actually really understanding that their help is needed, how they can help efficiently and effectively and thoughtfully um, in being really intentional in service. Um, that's another thing that, that we try to hone in on on all of our programs that is that it's not just, okay, here, I'm going to do this because I have a, a heart and I'm well-intentioned, right? Like Nathan said, like that gap between intentions and impact. How can we bridge that gap and make sure that there is intentionality in, in all of that? And actually making sure that the people are having agency in where whatever community you work in. And I'd be, I'd be remiss too. I've, I've been doing a lot of work uh, without, I'd be remiss without mentioning, I've been doing a lot of work with Labor, Labor Radio Podcast Network and there's a nonprofit uh, employees union uh, that has been doing a lot of organizing with uh, nonprofits with to improve that equity side of it. So um, wonderful. I, in closing, um, I, I want to end on an opti optimistic note, and I would like uh, to kind of just go around and and um, ask where do you see the greatest opportunities and promoting positive social impact in the nonprofit space? What a question. Um, <laughs> it can be immediate or it can be long-term or, uh, or it can be in the um, realm of possibility that maybe people have never thought about. Yeah, um, I think a lot of really great conversations are happening in the nonprofit sector um, that rattle what has traditionally defined the nonprofit sector and philanthropy and how we're giving money. Um, and who we give money to and who is giving the money and why. Um, and so there's so much work that still has to be done. Um, I don't know if I'll even see it in my lifetime and I'm pretty young, <laughs> but I think um, the fact that these conversations are happening and people are being forced to have, or forced, but people are having uncomfortable conversations of, um, you know, who is giving this money? Why are they giving this money? Why does the nonprofit sector exist? Is it a gap filler? Okay, how sustainable is that? And how can we work with policy and governments and people in the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector um, to make sure that they're more than just band-aids? Um, and so there are a lot of um, exciting things happening and growing um, in that space that I think are most exciting for me is kind of like looking at the system behind all of it, like behind all the nonprofits, behind all the doing good, um, you know, what, what is systematically causing these troubles? And then how can we look at that through the lens of philanthropy and nonprofits um, and, and kind of reassess 
the work that we're doing, whether it's environmental, immigration, education, whatever it may be, um, kind of tearing back some of the some of the veils that we've been looking through. Um, that's what I would say is most exciting for me. Yeah, I would expand upon that point of like the, this these moments of really critical conversations and really digging in and evaluating you know, not just the intentions, but the impact and really, you know, pulling that out. Um, Evan, I think you had mentioned earlier on, like a lot of people study policy, um, not because, you know, they're looking for the most lucrative career, but because they actually care about these issues. Um, but I think there's also a good moment right now where people are saying, I want to be able to have a career that does good and that my basic needs deserve to be met. So if you can tell along my point of, you know, how are we making sure that these not that any nonprofit, that any company um, is treating workers well, is treating people well, so that you know we can have these sustainable conversations, and that you know the nonprofit sphere doesn't have to be um, continue to be seen as it's it's do-gooders who just try really hard and then burn out because it's so hard. Like we want to be able to create these systems and conversations of um, you know how do we make sure people see the nonprofit sector as professional, as established, as well-run businesses more or less. So that people who are in these careers are seen as, you know, professional and they have good, stable balance, work-life balance, all of that. Um, so I think something exciting for me is more people demanding that, more people able to step up and say, you know, I want to be part of this to change this for the better. Um, so that we can still continue to serve our communities, do work that's really critical and make sure that, you know, again, we're not perpetuating issues with people who choose those careers themselves. And so... I think just the, the shift, even from when I was in school to actually be talking about those and then programs like our nonprofit management certificate that's really saying like, this is a degree, like this is a career, this is important, you can get these skills, um, I think is helping with that more professionalization. Um, and I think it's only gonna get better. It's only continue to, gonna continue to grow in great ways. And already, you know, these classes, we have students um, from, that you know maybe just graduated undergrad all the way to people who are in their professional careers so it's such a great moment to be able to come together so that's something i'm really personally excited about is to continue those conversations to continue to see these organizations grow and um, really challenge themselves and continue to make awesome impact yeah I'm, well I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to uh i mean i'm not alone in this for sure <laughs> um, but i'm looking forward to the recovery from the pandemic you know once once we all get vaccinated and the challenge becomes trying to put uh you know just what we were the type of society that we'd like to live in back together um what what needs to happen and what how will people respond um the good news and uh, we just we published something about this uh late earlier this year in the sub uh, um, in the early summer, but uh, historically, if you look at places like New York City after 9-11, and if you look at uh, the New Orleans, New Orleans area after Hurricane Katrina, uh, people really do respond to rebuilding the community and then taking care of the immediate needs that, uh, that are left by a hugely destructive event. The, and uh, the thing is, it doesn't take long. It only takes a few years for, uh, you know, for that higher level, that surge of activity, you know, helping each other to kind of wear off. And uh, um, after only a few years, participation levels in those places, uh, once the rebuilding is, is more or less done and then the basics are back in place, people stop participating and participation levels go back down to where they were. Um, so I think that 
you know, the, the challenge, the challenge, first of all, is that we need to figure out how to mobilize everybody and, and get together and, uh, and really rebuild effectively and quickly. Um, and then the challenge is going to be to try to help uh, keep that energy sustained so that people are still willing to, to do this work that needs help. Um, but I, the thing that isn't covered in the, in the report that we put out, but that we, we've noticed since then is that, uh, um, the rebuilding of, of New Orleans didn't really satisfy a lot of people. Um, and uh, I think uh, if you look at, for instance, what happened in the Ninth Ward, it wasn't really rebuilt so much as it was evacuated and uh, uh, set aside. You know, the focus was on rebuilding the rest of the city. And uh, there were people who were really unhappy with the way that New Orleans looked after the rebuilding was quote unquote done. Um, the good news about that is that the nonprofit sector in the area has gathered together to try to uh, uh, complete the job of the rebuilding and, and redress some of the problems that New Orleans has always had with equity issues and racial and ethnic disparities. And uh, they've committed to that 15 years after the initial event, and it's taken a while, which is, you know, hard to justify, but that work is getting done now. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, driven by the fact that we all feel the need for, uh, for a lot of work to be done along those lines to fix those problems throughout the country. And uh, once we all start, once we all leave the house and start getting out and about again, if we can all commit ourselves to doing that, I mean, I think we could actually rebuild, uh, build back better. That's not my own phrase, but you know, that's what we need to do.